Good to see you tonight. I'm excited to go after the fourth of six messages, discussions, whatever you want to call it, uh, concerning the story of the Bible. Are we on? We are. <clears throat> uh, as Ron mentioned, it was actually about three and a half months ago when we, we did our last of three in April, and it's been quite a summer. And uh, so we're uh, now ready to go after uh, tonight and then a couple in September. Um, tonight we're going to go after, we're going to work on the middle of the Old Testament, uh, the time of the kings and the Psalms. So I'm going to see if I can get this to go. <clears throat> okay, that's not going to do it. Why is that, Mike? We won't use that. We'll use this. I contemplated. It's been over three months. Do I need to start all over? Introduction, all over. And I decided that would be defeat the purpose of moving forward, right? So um, a few items here of review. If you weren't a part of any of those sessions, or if you were and you have a memory like I do, um, I, uh, I'm exploring what I'm calling the story of the Bible, the overarching theme of all of Scripture, of which every Bible story, of which every book, of which every chapter, of which every passage fits in and speaks towards. <clears throat> so I have my definition that we've shared a couple times here. Remember the first time I asked you to write out your story, or your definition in one sentence in one minute of the story of the Bible. Uh, many of you would have written something like this. Um, God's revelation to mankind concerning his purpose and plan to glorify his name by redeeming people from every people group in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. What happens in our lives, though I think most of you would agree with that statement, is most of us, by our living and by our teaching and by our speaking by our actions, don't tend to emphasize to glorify his name, nor do we tend to recognize that the story of the Bible is from every people group in the world. We typically, and if you were to invite a loved one or a friend or a family member or someone from another church who's not been exposed to this lately, and ask them to define the story of the Bible, I suggest to you that 80 to 90% of them would not include that it's all about God, to glorify his name. They would agree if you bring it up, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't think to include that as the overarching story of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> and I would suggest to you that hardly anyone in that definition would write down from every people group in the world the connection. And that is what I've been burdened to share with you, to help you to see that it's everywhere in the scriptures. It starts in Genesis, it goes to Revelation, and it is all the way through. So, typically people would, by our living and by our stating and by our speaking, would, would say something like, God's revelation to mankind concerning his purpose and plan to redeem people through his son Jesus Christ. All good, all right, but incomplete. 
And we're not working, as I've made it very clear, on the very critical portion of God's story, his redemption story through Jesus Christ. That's assumed. We're not pursuing that. Everyone understands that who knows Jesus and is familiar with his word. We are going to work on this, and we're going to emphasize that all the way through the scripture, God means to be glorified. Have you heard that before? Like maybe this morning? Eternal purposes of God to glorify himself? Fantastic challenge, uh, Tim, reminder from Ephesians 3. Ephesians 2 to 3 tell the story of the Bible very clearly, and Tim has been bringing that out. But it's not just God's glory for his special people. It's not about you and I. It's about him, and it's about his reach to nations. So by redeeming people from every people group in the world. So as we go on, we're going to continue to highlight passages of Scripture all the way through and help you to see that story. First message, after we gave a long introduction, we pursued Genesis 12, uh, and we talked about the beginning of the story when God came to Abraham. Abraham, who, who actually probably was a believer in many gods, didn't really know Yahweh God. So it wasn't because Abraham was such a godly man. He called Abraham out and said, Mom, I want you to move to a land I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bust the socks off of you. You are going to have a great name. You're having a great nation. All nations who bless you will be blessed. All nations who curse you will be cursed. It will go well with you, Abraham. And the last promise we tend to forget and all the families of earth, of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. He repeats that promise to Genesis two more time, uh, to Abraham two more times in Genesis, and he repeats it to his son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. So five times in, in Genesis, and we covered that. Then we went to the end of the story, Revelation. And Tim alluded to this a little bit, but even Revelation uh, 7, 9 shows a picture of all people from all languages, cultures, Nations and tribes. I said that wrong, but I think you get the point. We're around the throne. We'll be around the throne. It's still to come. Worshiping God, singing together. So we're going to be singing with peoples from the Korah Valley, right? We're going to be singing with people from the Yumbi Yumbi. We're going to be singing with people from the Fulani tribe who haven't been reached yet and all the other peoples of the world. It's going to be a great thing, and that's, that's the end of the story in Revelation. Second message, we touched on, we spent a lot of time in Exodus 7 through 14. The Exodus, God um, sending down ten plagues through Moses to free his people from Israel. The story we usually give our children and back and forth is, isn't God great? He delivered Israel from Egypt. That wasn't the main point of that. God did deliver his people from Egypt. He was building a nation so that that nation would bless the nations, right? But remember, we saw time and time again, a dozen or so times where God made it very clear. I'm sending this. This is happening so that Pharaoh will know that I am God. So that Egypt will know that there is a God in Israel. So that all the nations of the world will know that there's no other God but me. That was the main point of Exodus. And we, we pursued that on through the rest of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. We talked about the three that I brought up, I think there's a couple more, three times that Moses and Joshua argued with God. I think we can say that. God has come to them as leaders of the nation, of the disobedient people, and God says, I am going to wipe them off to the face of the earth. And each time, Moses twice pleads with God, and Joshua once says, you can't do that, God. You can't wipe them off. Why can't you wipe them off? Because what will that do for your great name? 
What will the nations around who saw you bring them out of Egypt, who know what you did in crossing the Red Sea, who in Joshua's case know that you brought them to the promised land, how in the world will your name survive this? And God, under, you know, God understood that ahead of time, but that was Moses and Joshua, the leaders, understood that it's about God, right? And it's about God's name and fame being known among all people. So then uh, the last time we came together, we jumped ahead, and I uh, actually went through 26 different verses or passages from Isaiah to Malachi, showed you, boom, 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 most of the prophetic books, how the prophets all knew that this story is not about them. It's about God being glorified and known and extended to the nations. And then I parked for 10 or 15 minutes on my favorite passage of Scripture, showing this story from Ezekiel chapter 36, if you remember that, where God first speaks to Ezekiel to the land, to the mountains. He says, to the mountains, prophesy to the mountains, O Ezekiel. Tell them I feel bad for you. You are a mess. The mountains in the land of Egypt, because of the, your people were taken out of, into exile and the enemy's here, they've destroyed, you've got thorns and thistles, there's no production, your land, you're suffering. And God prophesies to the land and says, I'm going to change that. I'm going to make you productive. I'm going to make you fruitful because I'm going to bring the people back into the land. And then he addresses the people, the exiled people, the Israelites that were sent away because of their wickedness. And he's going to bring them back and he's going to give them. He talks to Isaiah, Ezekiel to them. And he says, he says, I am going to bless your socks off. I am going to give you guys a heart of flesh and replace the heart of stone that's in you. I am going to give you a desire to know me. I'm going to make you productive. I'm going to give you peace. You're going to work the land, and it's going to be a wonderful thing, and you're going to see wonderful things happen. I am going to work. I'm going to give you a desire for me. But know this, Israel. Know this, that it's not because of you. It's not for your sake I'm doing this. I'm not bringing you back because you've been obedient. You have profaned my name in Israel, and then you profaned my name throughout the nations because I had to judge you and send you away. I am bringing you back for one reason. What's that reason? For my sake, O Israel. I am bringing you back so that my name will be known among all peoples. It's only for me that I'm doing this. Fulfill my promise to show you kindness and bring you back, not, not for your sake. So that was uh, the prophets. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to work, as I mentioned, on portions of Israel king Israel's kingdom periods as well as the Psalms. A very familiar story, David and Goliath. David, as you know, <clears throat> just before he took the stone, he had five, didn't he? Or at least the song says that. But as soon as he took the stone, just before he took the stone and sling it at Goliath, he defiantly speaks towards the giant. And he says this, or this is what the Bible says. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. So he says this. He says this, Goliath. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And then what does not King David, but little shepherd, young David, say? And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but those of us as parents, Sunday school teachers of kids, even adult Bible study leaders, when we tell this story, 
How often do we emphasize that part of it? How often do we say the whole point of David and Goliath is not David's courage, not David's faithfulness, not David's um, special trust and relationship with God. No, it's so that God will be glorified and known with the whole world. That's the story. And I submit to you that most of the well-known Bible stories that we teach and we know and we love have that same emphasis. Look for it when you teach it, that kind of thing. Quickly now, King David near the end of his life, 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty. Therefore I will praise you, O Lord. He's praising God among the nations. What's that mean? Therefore I will praise you, Lord, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. You know the story of Naaman from Aram. Aram, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, has leprosy. His servant girl from Israel, stolen from Israel, I assume, knew and got word to his master, I know a man, a prophet in Israel who could heal you. And they follow it up, and Naaman swallows his pride and goes to Elisha and swallows his pride again and goes and dips in the, in the water seven times, and he's healed. What does Naaman, Naaman, from an enemy nation, the commander of the army, what does he do? The Bible says, us, Na, says, Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Was Elisha, was Israel, were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a blessing to the nations there? Absolutely. This, this heathen, this Gentile, this enemy now knows that there is a God. No other God in all the world except in Israel. King Hezekiah, much later in the life of the kingdom of Israel, 2 Kings 19, this is right after the northern ten tribes have been taken captive by Sennacherib uh, <coughs> of Assyria. <coughs> And he's pleading with God because he's next. Sennacherib's coming after him. And he says, he breaks out and prays, Oh Lord, God of Israel, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Then he goes on to talk about the great threat he's facing from Sennacherib. Lord, if you don't do something, we're history. But it's not just that, not we're history. Now, verse 19, now, O oh Lord, our God, Deliver us from his hand so that we can be free. Is that what it says? So that, so that I don't have to give up my kingship, so that my life isn't in danger. No, he says, oh, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. Why? So that all kingdoms on earth, all kingdoms on earth might know that you alone, oh, God, oh, Lord, are God. Now I want you, I invite you to. If you'd rather not, it's no problem. I invite you to open your Bibles. Twice I'm going to read through passages to just be easier and get us interacting there. Uh, to 1 Kings 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. I want to dwell a few minutes from 4 through 10 about King Solomon and wisdom and the temple and the queen of Sheba. Fantastic passage. So I hope you can follow along. I don't necessarily mean from the Bible, but a lot of the text will be up on the screen that I read, but I'm going to be reading from the Bible the, the full amounts in these areas. So God has said to invited uh, Solomon, 
ask whatever you will, and I'll give it. And what does Solomon ask for? He asks for wisdom. He asks for wisdom. Verse 29 of chapter 4 of 1 Kings. I'm going to start reading. And I just have bullet points up here that summarize this, this portion. <clears throat> God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Kalkol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. Incredible wisdom, greater than any. His fame has been spreading. He, verse 32, spoke 3,000 proverbs. I have trouble speaking one. He spoke 3,000 proverbs in his songs, numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Verse 34, men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Think back to God's promise to Abraham. You and your descendants will be a blessing to all families of the earth. God has raised up Solomon with his incredible wisdom. His fame has spread throughout all the nations around. Greater wisdom than anyone and now all nations are coming to hear what he has to say because the word has gotten out. They, all the nations, came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Thumb pat now to chapter 8. Solomon has been led by God, directed by God, to build a temple for God to dwell with his people in Israel. <clears throat> And at the end, after he builds the temple, most of chapter 8 is his prayer of dedication for the temple. And so he's paragraph after paragraph talking about how God will be related to your people and praying to God to do this and that. And then, then we come to verse 41. And Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who's been blessed incredibly by God, recognizes that this temple isn't just for the people of Israel. It's for all nations. I'm going to read the whole part, but a lot of it's on the screen. As for the foreigner, says Solomon, crying out to God, praying to God, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land because of your name, the foreigners, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he, come, when he comes, when the foreigner comes and prays toward this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel. When we think of the temple, we don't tend to think of the temple being for all peoples, do we? We tend to think of the temple being where God dwells with his people Israel. According to Solomon right here, he understood it's not just that. It goes beyond us so that they will know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and that they, the foreigners, may know, all nations may know that this house I have built bears your name. Near the end of chapter uh, 8, Paul is, or Solomon is done with his, uh, his uh, 
prayer of dedication, he's broken out, out into praise. Near the end of that, verse 59 and 60, May these words of mine, says Solomon, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need. Verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Solomon gets it. I am one of the most confusing, perplexing things in all of the scriptures to me is how Solomon, later in life, turns away. He's blessed incredibly, and I, I, I don't even have any answers to that, but he gets it, doesn't he? He understands that it's all about God and his reach to the nations, that all peoples will know that you are the only God. Uh, chapter 9. God comes, to, the Lord comes to Solomon and says, it's a blessing and cursing passage. If you and your descendants obey me and follow me, you will never cease to have a descendant on the, as, as king on the throne. But, verse 6, if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and I will reject this temple. I have consecrated for my name. This temple's all good and well, but it's not about the temple. And if you guys disobey, if you turn away, I'm going to get rid of the temple, and I'm going to get rid of the people, and you will no longer have someone on the throne. Uh, where am I? Israel will then become, fascinating, the last part of verse 7, Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. You remember Moses' argument and Joshua's argument to God? If you wipe them out, what's going to do for your great name? Well, God has now worked with Israel, and the whole world knows that God is there. And so how does God answer this now? He's not going to listen to that kind of an argument anymore. Verse 8. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by, talking about the foreigners, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff, and they will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be, the people will answer, because they, the Israelites, the kings, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt, and they have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all the disaster on them. So that's God's warning to Solomon. You obey, it'll go well for you. You disobey, you turn away from me, and I'm wiping this whole thing out, and it'll be on you, it won't be on me. Right? Because it's all about me, and it's all about my reputation to the nations. Finally, chapter 10. Favorite part of this. <clears throat> the Queen of Sheba. Probably from the area of Yemen now, maybe East Africa, somewhere in that area is where the Queen of where Sheba was. And we have uh, chapter 10. I'm going to read the first few verses. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, get that? When he heard about Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had in her mind. Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food 
on his table, the seating of the officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings. He made his, the burnt offerings he made to the, at the temple of the Lord. The queen of Sheba was overwhelmed. This is unbelievable. Verse 6, she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth. You have far exceeded the report I heard. Verse 8, how happy, this is the queen of Sheba to Solomon, the queen of Sheba who doesn't know the God of Israel, right? How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Verse 9 is on the screen. I've got to find it in the Bible. Praise be to the Lord your God. This is the Queen of Sheba. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. If only Solomon recognized that all his life, right? That it was God who did this. The Queen of Sheba recognized it in verse 23 and 24. Kind of a summary. You'll see that this is what God intended all the way through. <clears throat> King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, etc. So the whole world sought wisdom with Solomon to hear the wisdom of God. Solomon had the most incredible platform for blessing the nations. And we know what happened some, at least with the Queen of Sheba and many others who came and saw it. We know ultimately, long term, Solomon and the rest of the kings of Israel, Judah, turned away from God and they weren't a blessing to the nations like they should have been, correct? But uh, it was incredible, the platform, and this helps us to see the story of the Bible. We're going to jump ahead now on the screen for a few uh, psalms. I'm going to go through some psalms. I'm going to read with you if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 67. That'll be next in the Bible that we actually read from there. But these are all from the Bible. Psalm 2.8, the Messianic Psalm, where the Father says to the Son, God the Father to the Son in prophecy Ask of me, son, and I will make the nations your inheritance. I will make the ends of the earth your possession. 46.10, we're familiar with this. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 47, 1 through 9, portions of 1 through 9. Clap your hands, all your nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. They're breaking out in praise. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a song of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of God. See that? The leaders, the nobles of the nations, assemble as the people of God, uh, as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. 57, Psalms 57, 5 through 11. Be exalted, O God. 
above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. We sing this, don't we? I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. This is a psalmist. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 67. If you're there, I'm not. Short psalm. First verse is God blessing us or crying out to God for a blessing in Israel. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why? That your ways may be known on earth, that your salvation may be known among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. We sang this tonight. May the nations praise you, O God. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. I, I, I'm starting verse 3 again. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly, and you guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples. That's not the peoples of Israel. It would say, may the people praise you. That's talking about the nations. May the peoples praise you. May the nations know you. May they bring you glory. Verse 6, then the land will yield its harvest, and God our God will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Go to Psalm 96. I just noticed that it's quoted out there in the missionary display. And I want you to look at something special here. I didn't... I didn't see this. I was taught this, and since then I'm amazed at it. I want you to look and see the double direction of God's glory that's right in this one psalm that is something that should be true in all we do that helps us to see the heart of God and his reach to the nations. <clears throat> Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Verse 3, a command, a declaration for his people, God's people, the psalmist there. Declare his glory, where? Among the nations. Send his glory, make his name known, declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Now look at verse 7. Look at the change. The psalmist now says to the nations, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. So the psalmist in this one psalm calls out to his people. Declare God's glory to the nations. They don't know him. They need to know about this great God we serve. And then in the same psalm, he says to the nations who, have, who will hear about this great God, nations, peoples of the earth, declare or ascribe glory that's due him. So that's really what this is all about. It's all about God calling his people, bringing us to himself, redeeming us through his son, Jesus Christ, not because of us, right? 
but because of him and because his desire to love us and to bring us into that relationship where we can bring him worship, as we take his name to the nations, the nations who are here in Lansing and some in St. John's and our nation, and as we send others to the nations, declare his glory among the nations, send out his name, I want to be known. I will be known among all peoples. And then the end result, the goal is what? That the nations. And we see it in Revelation 7, don't we? The nations will glorify God, will bring him glory, will ascribe honor to his name. So God is all about, as Tim helped us to see so well this morning, he's all about his own glory, right? He's all about creating mankind in this earth so that he can receive glory. Oh, there's many other great things, including our privilege to be a part of it and to be redeemed in the future we have. But the story of the Bible, it's all about God and his reach to the nations. Okay, that's all we're going to do from leafing through the Bible because we're going to go quickly to get done. Psalm 98, 2 and 3. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness where? To the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. That's true. That's great. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. 99, 1 through 3. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Think about that. Let the earth, let the nations tremble, shake. It's as if God's up there causing a major earthquake, right? Let the nations shake. Why? Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them, let who? Let the nations praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. That's all we're going to look at tonight from the scripture. So, Bottom line, we've bagged the whole Old Testament. I have given you, over a period of three or four sessions, highlights. Obviously, I think the best highlights are the easiest to understand. I want you to know that there's, it, there's so much more there that we didn't come close to touching. And I encourage you as you study and as you read, as you teach, that you look for it. Look for it. Read it and see it. And follow it. The story of the Bible. But... I want to I spend a few minutes here. So what? Why does this matter? We put this on the screen the first night. My cry out to God for each one of you is the same cry for me that he would help me to grow in this, is that you would become world Christians, you would grow as world Christians. What do we mean by that? This isn't the only definition. This is how I explain it. A world Christian is a believer in the Lord Jesus who has become aware of what God is doing in the world. That is the first half. If you've been a part of these sessions, if you've been exposed to this through perspectives or other ways of understanding God's heart for the nations, you have become, you've at least begun to become aware of what God is doing in the world. Aware of God's heart. Aware of the fact that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God and worshiping Him. You've become aware, not in these sessions, but as you, if you open your eyes, what God has done in history to do exactly what He says is going to happen. He says to Abraham and his offspring, you will be a blessing to all nations. Ultimately, that's fulfilled through who? Jesus. And it continues to be fulfilled. We're going to look in the New Testament, the, next, the last two sessions in September. And uh, God is doing an incredible work after Acts, after the Bible, 
the New Testament time up to the present. He's reaching. He's continuing on the march. And we have missionaries that we send. We have one missionary couple looking to go here. He's on the move. So the first part of being a world Christian is someone who loves Jesus, who has become aware of what God is doing in the world. But it can't stop there. And that's where it stops real often. The second part of this definition is so critical. And who, therefore, is continually and passionately pursuing ways in which he or she can take an active part. A world Christian, someone who has come to understand that it's all about God and his reach of the nations, seeing the story of the Bible, however you want to describe that, and looking at passage after passage, and seeing that God is on the move now and recognizing that there's thousands of people groups in the world and thousands of people groups in the world that yet don't know Jesus. Okay? But, people, but God is on the move. And then we're asking ourselves, each one of you are to ask yourself, how can I be a part? What can I do to make a difference? Now, we're going to dwell on this some in the last couple sessions. That active part we're pursuing can be going as a missionary. Some God is calling. We're to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out missionaries, right? To send out laborers. But that doesn't... I don't even know how to say this. That doesn't allow the rest of us to get off the hook. Matter of fact, that's the wrong way to say it because if you are going about your Christian life, and I mean this passionately, and you're not part of the nations, part of reaching the nations, you haven't recognized that that's what God wants of you, you're missing an incredible privilege. You're missing an incredible blessing. It's all good. So really, it's not so much that you're off the hook. It's more you're missing. You're missing what you could be a part of. So... Most of us, God calls us to continue to work in the factory or in the office or on automobiles or on the farm or whatever it is that you're doing or at home with the children, raising them to love Jesus and to know his heart for the nations. Most of us will stay home and we'll be involved in praying and we'll be involved in sending others and giving and mobilizing and welcoming the nations who have come here. But it's easy to spend too much time on that and not have time to finish. So what? How should this affect our lives? I had this list up, I think, uh, week two. I submit to you there's not a thing that you're involved with day in and day out, 24-7, that should not be impacted by the story of the Bible. Okay, that's a strong statement, but I challenge you to tell me differently. Okay? I submit to you that there's not a passage in all of Scripture that does not fit into this story. So if that's the case, how should it affect the decisions in our lives? How should it affect church life, evangelism, family, finances, prayer, recreation, hobbies, trials, suffering, persecution, work, worship? The second session, we spent time on trials, suffering. How should we, how, how does this story of the Bible help us through the challenges that we face, the difficulties that we face, that we're going to face, that we have faced, that we're facing right now? Uh, week three, we worked on prayer. How should this story of the Bible affect my prayer life, your prayer life? How should it affect prayer life corporately within this body? I want to spend the last few minutes on how should it impact church life? How should it impact local bodies of believers, including this one? I wish I could get this message out to all who are part of this body, but I'm so delighted to be able to ch uh, challenge you with it and share with you. I, uh, well, that last list, 
there's 10 things there. There could be 50 more, but there's only room for 10 on the list, okay? The life and ministry of the church. You who are Sunday school, children's Sunday school teachers, you who are Awana workers, you who work with children in junior church, actually, you parents, grandparents who work with children and teach them stories of the Bible. I alluded to this already. I don't want to spend a lot of time. Are you looking for that story? Are you looking to pass on that story? I urge you to do that. I urge you to think through, what does Daniel and the lion's den have to do with this story? It's incredible what it has to do with this story. I actually quoted it last, uh, last time. What does uh, Peter walking on water have to do with this story? You name it. Look for it and pass it on. The same can be said about adult Bible studies. Those of us who are leading small group adults, those of us who are lecturing, those who are preaching and teaching from the pulpit, our ministries around the Bible, how are we exposing the story as we do that? Beacon of Hope Ministries, great ministry that's so well known here that you do such a great job at and everyone does and I think there's dozens and dozens, I don't know how many workers you have involved. How does, how does this story of the Bible affect the ministry of Beacon of Hope? How in the counseling, but much more than the counseling, the interaction one-on-one and the giving out of food and the helping with Bible studies and all that, how, how can we use this story? Is this story affecting the ministry of Beacon of Hope? I challenge you to think that through and imagine how your involvement in this church and Beacon of Hope, whatever ministry, how this should impact your life. How about the elders, pastors, deacons? How about uh, other leaders in the church? How are we modeling this story? How can we challenge our people with this story by our lives? Are we living it? Are we teaching it? Are we showing it? Are we pointing to it? I challenge us to work hard in this area. Church music. Mike, where is he? Way back there. How does this affect church music? The ensemble who sings up here, the instrumentalists, all who are participating in music, Day in and day out, or week in and week out, week out. What impact should this have? I give glory to God that in the last 20 years since I've been paying attention to this, we have learned, been introduced to so many more songs that are not just about us, right? Songs that bring glory to God. We worship Him in songs that point out, just like the last song here did, that it's for the nations. Let the nations be glad, and we're singing that more and more. How can that be impacted more? You that are up here front, what's your motive? How should this impact your motive? Are you looking for attention for yourself? That can be asked about anyone in any kind of ministry here. What is your motive up here? Are you seeking to encourage our people to look upward and to praise our king and to be a part of reaching the nations? I challenge you with that. How about church unity? And with this I close. This could impact, we could list many more things unity, but three passages of the New Testament we know so well, that are so well understood that we could, a lot of us could quote them. It is at the heart of God that the church gathered is unified, right? Actually, the universal church is unified and then we're gathered. Why? In Jesus' high priestly prayer, much more could be quoted here, just one little statement. When Jesus is crying out to the Father, John 17, 23, may they that is, those who follow after the apostles, who, are, who believe in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me. 
the critical nature of this body working together in harmony, loving one another in spite of the warts that I have and that you have, right? Pursuing Christ together. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Again, in Philippians 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. I submit to you that if we as a congregation understand and start living this story of the Bible, it will revolutionize the unity in our midst. It will cause us to be less concerned about the petty, right? It will cause us to be less concerned about how people are different than us. I'm going to introduce a word to you here. Some of you know this word well. Some of you may have never heard of this word, ethnocentrism. It's not properly applied here, but I'm going to. Ethnocentrism is basically ethno, ethnic, ethne, nations, cultures, centrism, uh, center, they're a chief. Every one of us have this tendency, and every nation, every people group, every culture has this tendency to think what? That the way they do things, the way they think, what they value, what's important to them is the right way, and everyone else is out to lunch. Okay? That's, that's what ethnocentrism is. It's our way or the highway. It's how we see things. It's how we do things. Don't bother us. We're right. You're wrong. I suggest to you that in the flesh, our default as individual believers, that we tend to be the same way. That we have a tendency to think, you know, I think this is how we should dress. I think this is how they should lead music. I think this is how our pastor should preach. I think this is how the nursery should be run. I think this is the color the carpet should be. And we can go on and on and on. Oh, you know, so-and-so, what they did to me was just wrong. We get offended continually by the warts of others. What do we do with it? I suggest that the story of the Bible would help us to say, hey, it's not about me. It's no, it's about them. I don't have to, I don't have to make everyone like me. No, it's all about God and reaching the nations for our king. We offend someone. We all do. I have, you have. The story of the Bible should challenge us to say, wait, that's going to that's gonna disrupt unity. That's going to at least cause problems between us. I'm going to go to that person really quick-like, and I'm going to make it right because I want us to be going the same direction. If we all understand the story of the Bible, we're no longer concerned about our own desires, right? How about doctrinal issues? I don't mean the fundamentals of the faith, but principles and practices in the church, doctrinal differences. Does everyone have to be the same for me to love them and serve with them? If so, we're going to have a lot more churches than about one person in each church, right? It doesn't work that way. If we can all line up behind God and His reach for the nations and our goal, our goal as we come together and when we pray, when we worship, when we teach, when we lead, when we're serving in nurseries and toddlers and everywhere else, if our goal is to see God glorified and to, to challenge our brothers and sisters in the Lord to do the same, we're no longer concerned about their warts, right? We're no longer concerned about their differences. No, we have one goal, 
and that's to worship our creator God and see him worshiped among all peoples. That make sense? So that's, I'm going to close. I think, I, think, uh, I think God has called us as a church family to grow in unity in all these other areas because of the story of the Bible. Let's close. Father, thank you. I pray that you will use this broken servant and the words that have been spoken and your word that has been read and quoted to work in our hearts, to mold us and to make us more like Jesus. And may it be our desire to pursue you. May you grow world Christians in our midst. May you cause us as a body here to explode for you so that this community will know you because of our love and the world, the nations will be reached in part because of our work. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.